Well, I don't know about you, but I love a good witty quip. Whether it's a, a meme or a bumper sticker, I, I, I love it. I can spend way too much time tracking down a good joke, especially good dad jokes lately, too. I don't know if you noticed, but uh, following the inauguration south of the border, uh, Mr. Bernie Sanders, Senator Bernie Sanders, made uh, appearance in all kinds of memes, and we're going to see one from him in just a little bit. Uh, lost somewhere super funny. So this week, uh, just as I was preparing, I, I searched, I plugged into the old Google machine, Christian memes, and then I set a timer so that I wouldn't spend my entire day laughing at pictures. So here's a couple of my favorites that I found out. Uh, first, we've got Thor. And uh, as it pops up there, there we go. Someone says, you know, our God is stronger than your God. And Elijah says, is he though? A little Old Testament there. Uh, second one, just follow your height, your heart. Dwight says, false. And then quotes Jeremiah, the heart is deceitful above all things. Follow Jesus, not your heart. Third one, I like this little guy. He shows up a lot. Started my one-year Bible plan. Yes, made it through Leviticus. We'll throw back to the youth pastor days. My youth pastor, when he sees me on my phone and I'm supposed to be paying attention. One last one. We can't, we can't have memes without Bernie. Here he is on the left. You see, when a Pentecostal is not enjoying your sermon. And on the right, what it looks like when a Baptist is enjoying your sermon. We can laugh at ourselves, right? We got to be able to laugh at ourselves. That one I saw a few friends post and I had to share that with you. As you know, uh, some bumper stickers can be just as much fun, blasting out a message for all the world to see. And I, I, I got to say, if you're willing to stick a sticker on the back of your car with some sort of a witty quip or something, you're really committing to that thing. I mean, you got to really, really like it. The problem is, sometimes those messages, especially the bumper sticker messages, they claim to be the Christian message. Maybe you've heard or seen some of these. One says, you know, God wants you to be happy just as you are. I'm not sure that's in the Bible. Another one says something like this, you do your part and God will do his. Or, or God is my co-pilot, as if I'm in control and God's just sitting next to me saying, there, there, Sean, we got this together. Are, are any of those the Christian message? I would say no. There may be some, some half-truths baked in there. Yes, God is always with us. God will do his part for sure. God does want you to be happy, but it's more than that. Here's the thing. I, I think you might be able to get really close. You can definitely get some truths from Christianity, bumper sticker size, and plaster them on the back of your car, but you really can't boil down the message of Christianity just to that small little bit. This morning, we're back in John's Gospel in the middle of chapter 4. So if you've got a Bible with you, and I hope you do, whether it's on your phone or, you know, we still have some of these paper ones around as well, uh, flip open to John chapter 4, and we're going to continue to look at Jesus' conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. And in the verses we're looking at today, Jesus both delivers and defines the greatest message in the world, the Gospel. See, if this woman wants to understand Christianity, and if we want to understand Christianity, we need to uh, understand three things. Sin, Savior, 
and salvation. So that's where we're headed this morning. Let's jump into the text. John 4, I'm going to start reading at verse 16. So Jesus said to her, again, we're sort of jumping in the middle of this conversation here. We, we started last week. Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, we talked about these verses last week, so I don't want to spend too, too much time here this morning. But what we're starting to unpack here is the root of the human condition. It's that we have these desires in our hearts that were, that were placed there by God. These desires were, were placed by God so that we would seek and find him, just like we alluded to in our New City Catechism opening up, that, that God created us in his image and God created everything to, to point us to him. But we've gone after so many other things other than God. Right from the beginning of the Bible, right from we can open up to Genesis chapter 3, we see humanity going after what it perceives to be best for itself and turning away from God in order to do so. And so here's the thing. And until we realize what we're doing, until we realize this is our truth as well, that we have set aside God to go after our own things, following the truths of Jesus, it really won't even matter. One pastor in the 17th century said this, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Charles Spurgeon, who was called the Prince of Preachers as well, he wrote this, too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the Savior. He says, but, but he who has stood before God, convicted and condemned, realizing that it is our sin that's causing us trouble, for him who stands before God, convicted and condemned, with the rope around his neck, he is the man to weep for joy when he is pardoned, to hate the evil which has been forgiven him, and to live to the honor of the Redeemer by whose blood he has been cleansed. Last week, we defined sin as pursuing satisfaction in something other than God. It's when we use the things around us, temporal, earthly things, people, relationships, stuff, pleasures here. We try to use those things to fill the areas in our lives, the, the longings and desires in our souls that only God was meant to fill. And just in case we're not clear, this is all of us. This is every single one of us. Every one of us has chased after satisfaction at some point, if not right now, in something other than God. One last thing on these verses here, just because we did look at them last week, we don't want to spend too, too much time. Jesus isn't highlighting her specific sin to heap guilt and shame on her. But instead, he's, he's bringing this one up to demonstrate her uh, that he knows her, to demonstrate that he, he knows her heart and he wants to as well confront the pain that's a part of her life but that has come from the relationships with all these men. See, earlier in John's gospel, in John chapter 2, we're told that, that Jesus knew all people. He knew the hearts of people. See, he knows our hearts. He knows what, what breaks them and he knows what will fill them and he knows this of her as well. See, here's the thing. 
Christianity, it's not about heaping guilt and shame on people, beating them up with all the ways that they've disappointed some old man in the sky in an effort to make them change behaviors. Although that's the reputation we often earn. Instead, Christianity is about recognizing that the solutions to these desires, the the, the wants and needs we think are best for ourselves, they're not able to carry the weight of our ultimate desires. And instead, we're supposed to be heading to Jesus and pointing people to Jesus, the one who says, come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy burdened. Jesus is the one that says, I know you. I know what makes your heart beat. I know what gets you up in the morning. I know you. I know you're chasing after something. And I'm telling you, I can give you all that you need. Let's keep reading. Verse 19. The woman said to Jesus, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. She's starting to, to piece some of the pieces together here. She's putting the pieces together. She is, you know, religious as we're going to find out. And she starts to call Jesus a prophet, maybe the prophet that they have been waiting for. Verse 20, she says, And now our fathers have worshipped on this mountain. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So she brings up a, a controversy here instead. But do you see what she did when she did that? It was really subtle, and I think even a little bit shifty, but I think we all do it. She's having this conversation with Jesus where Jesus starts to bring up desires and longings in her hearts, and Jesus Jesus puts his finger on something. He he points out the sin in her life, one that, that no question brought up in her feelings of pain and abandonment and sadness and anxiety and and brokenness and hurt and all the things, something in her life that, that she no doubt knew wasn't right. Because she does speak from a, a, a religious understanding. She knows something is off in the way that, that she's living. But what does she do when she's pressed? She really quickly changes the topic, doesn't she? She brings up another issue, another controversy. It is a big one. It's one of the most significant between Jew and Samaritan that where are we supposed to worship? She says, we have been worshiping here, but but you say that's no good. We got to go somewhere else. She's shifting the focus completely off of herself. Does anyone, anyone else do this when we get stuck, get asked a hard question? I actually caught myself doing that exact thing this week. I was doing a bit of of prep work for a a video call with a mentor and knowing that we were going to talk about some personal stuff and we were going to talk about some some church, some organizational stuff. And and as I was kind of going through the the personal questions that he'd asked me to have ready to kind of work through with him, I could sense that the Lord was starting to bring some things up, point out some areas of weakness in my life. And I wasn't really sure that I was ready to admit to or, or deal with these things. And so I quickly decided, let's look at some other questions. So when we got on the call, we caught up a little bit, and they asked, so what are you preaching this week? And I said, well, here's the passage, and guess what? I just did exactly what the woman did to Jesus. Jesus put his finger on something in my life, and I said, you know what? If I can just pad out what I want you to help me with this in this other place instead. So let me ask. We're all friends here. You're in the relative safety of your own homes. What's Jesus putting his finger on? 
Is there, there something right now in your life that the Holy Spirit is stirring up in you and saying, listen, we, we need to deal with this thing. But instead, you just want to deflect and think about something else. If you're checking us out for the first time or investigating, you know, who is Trinity Bible Church? What do they believe? If you're somehow stumbled upon here and, and are just kind of checking out Jesus and, and wouldn't say that you believe yet, what about you? I think so many of our, the objections we hear to Christianity that, that people bring up are, are so often just deflections, if we're honest with ourselves. Maybe, maybe Jesus is trying to, to work something out in your heart, whether you'd acknowledge him working in your heart or the Holy Spirit working in your heart or not. But instead of trying to wrestle with the uncomfortableness that comes with, with uh, these types of questions, you just deflect with that, yeah, well, the church is a bunch of hypocrites anyways. Yeah, the church is a disaster. Why would I want to be a part of that group? I can't be a part of them. I believe in science instead, whatever the deflection might be. Let me just take a minute and, and pray for us. And you can pray along with me if you'd like. And say, Lord, I'd ask that you reveal the things in our hearts that are keeping us from you. Stir, stir up those things. And then second, give us the courage to face them without deflecting. Yesterday morning, I was on a Zoom call. I started a, a, a course on biblical counseling. It was kind of our first group meeting. And, and at the end, our, our leader, Jason, was, was talking, kind of giving his story. And he, he brought up Genesis 3. And he says, I just keep coming back to this. Look, when in Genesis 3, that's the, the most, he called it the most shameful moment in human history. The people, Adam and Eve, they had everything. They had a perfect relationship with God, and they went after their own thing. And what did they do right away? They tried to cover it up. They tried to hide behind these little fig leaves or some kind of leaves to, to hide their shame. But what does God do? His first question is, where are you? Why, why have you gone somewhere else? And then we read, he, he, he looks at this, this covering they've made for themselves and said, who, who, first, who told you this thing that you need something more than me? Who's, whose voice are you listening to? And then he sees this, this mediocre, barely working covering that they've tried to fashion for themselves and says, let me take care of you. And we read that he, he slaughtered an animal somehow and he, he gave them a real covering, and he still took care of them. And then he promised to make it right. And that's the hour we're about to read here with Jesus. Let's keep reading. Verse 21, Jesus said to the woman, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming, and neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Look, right away, he... he, he he just talks about the Father, not our Father and your Father. Right away, he's building unity here. Again, the, the where of worship was one of the biggest disagreements between Jews and Samaritans, and Jesus doesn't yet wade into the controversy here. Instead, he, he hints at what's to come and says, listen, you know what, pretty soon, this big deal, it's not even going to matter anymore. The way, the, the, the way that we worship, it's not going to be about a place or a holy site or a city anymore. I think he starts here because he's, he's probably, he knows her, so she's probably thinking, okay, this Jew is going to make me come worship like a Jew. They're going to make me look like him and make me go to their place. But he's like, no, no, no. 
I don't want to make you look like this. Things are about to change. Remember, whenever we see John in the gospel here use the hour, he is pointing us forward to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Jesus continues in verse 22, and here he actually does answer her theology question. He says to her, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. He's correcting the Samaritan theology here. Now, now they as a people had thrown out everything in the Old Testament except for the first five books, the, the Pentateuch. And Jesus is saying, because you've done this, you've missed out on some really important things. God didn't stop revealing himself after those first five books. He continued to reveal himself and show up and keep pointing to me, ultimately, Jesus is saying. And you've missed all these things. You don't know what he's like. You don't know what worship is supposed to be like. And you, you don't know that I'm the one that's coming, that the Messiah is coming. You don't know all these things, so you worship what you don't know because you've missed it. He says God has continued to work through his people, through the Jewish nation, so, so they know him because they know his story imperfectly, of course. So he says God's rescue plan, salvation, is not going to come from the Samaritans. It's going to come from the Jews. And again, Jesus, in this whole conversation, continues to show her all kinds of grace and speak all kinds of kindness to her. But on this point, he's not going to water down truth just to make her feel good. You know, you guys are you're pretty close. I know you've you've missed something. Really important here for her and for us today. Notice that Jesus says salvation is from the Jews, not that salvation is for the Jews. God's rescue plan is for everyone. No one has a monopoly on it and no one ever has. Verse 23, Jesus says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will, will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him, and, and God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. He builds on the hour that he said just two verses ago and says, now this, this time is now here. He's being pretty explicit and he will get more so. He's saying Jesus on his mission and his impending death and resurrection and the sending of the Holy Spirit are about to change everything forever. And so the way that we worship is going to change. Now, lots of times, I think if we have grown up in around the church, we're probably familiar with this interaction. We're familiar with the story. We're even familiar with these verses. And we start to think that Jesus is talking about a Sunday gathering. Jesus wants us to, to worship in spirit and truth. Okay, so when we gather for an hour or so on Sunday morning, we've got to be in the spirit, we've got to be in the truth. And though that's a part of it, Jesus is certainly talking about so much more than just that. Because remember who he's talking to. He's not talking to a Christian or a Jew here. He's talking to someone who's, who's a non-Christian, a, a non-Jew, who has some beliefs, but they're incorrect. They need to be fleshed out and, and filled out. He's saying, here's what the gospel is going to look like. And so there's a couple key words we want to focus on in verse 24. In spirit, he says, and in truth. Just a, a few verses earlier, at the end of chapter 3, flip back there with me if you will. We're watching this, this time, again, this is a passage where John the Baptist's disciples are coming and saying, listen, Jesus is getting pretty popular. Uh, should, 
we do something different so we can keep getting popular? And he says, no, no, we're going to decrease so that he can increase. Our whole mission is to send people to him. And so John keeps pointing people to Jesus. And then look at verse 31. This is John 3, 31. John the Baptist says, He who comes from above is above all, and he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. That, that's him. John is talking about himself there. I speak in an earthly way, but the one that's from heaven is above all. He's pointing to Jesus again. He's saying to us that, that Jesus is a reliable witness. Jesus is, is the one that we should follow because uh, he has been with God. And he, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard because he has been with God. And yet we read, despite Jesus' reliability, the, the reliability of his witness, no one accepts his testimony. Look at verse 32. But then John finishes in the next verse, John 3 33 says, the one who has accepted his testimony, the one who, who has believed in what Jesus is saying and has affirmed that God is true, spirit and truth, right? That God is true. For the one who God sent, that's Jesus, speaks God's word since he gives the spirit, spirit and truth, without measure. One writer says, to worship God in spirit and in truth means that we have received the truth, the testimony about who Jesus is, and we have received the spirit. So Jesus is talking about salvation. Jesus is talking about the rescue plan. He continues and says, We turn from the lies and errors of this world and embrace the truth about Jesus and receive his spirit, who then dwells inside each one who believes. And so Jesus is saying, in effect, I've come to bring salvation, true salvation that makes people worshipers of God. They've turned from their self-worship, vowing allegiance to their own efforts, their own desires, their own glory. They've turned from that and have knelt in obedience and allegiance to the one true God. The only way, he says, the only way that people turn from self-worship to God-worship, from rebellion to obedience, is by embracing the truth about Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit. That's the salvation Jesus brings. One other writer, George Beasley, says, to worship in spirit and truth is a reminder that worship is not restricted to what we do when we come together in church, but it's about the way we relate to God through the spirit and in accordance with the teachings of Jesus that touches the whole life. This is an everyday thing. This is a later this afternoon thing. This is a tomorrow morning on the way to work thing. This is a, a whatever picking the kids up from school thing. We, everything we do is about clinging to Jesus' truth and worshiping in the Spirit. Our whole lives are worship. And this whole discussion Jesus is having now is framed again around the hour in verse 21 and 23. Jesus is, is pointing us forward at this point in John's gospel to his death and resurrection and how it will change worship forever. See, salvation, God's rescue plan, uh, rescue from our sin, from our rebellion, from our turning to our own ways, isn't found in the temple or on a mountain, but it's found at the cross. It's not found in, in religious rites or ceremonies or, or how often we pray or, or how often we show up or log into church, but it's found in Jesus' death and resurrection. See, our, our rescue from sin, our rescue from the consequences of, of us turning and giving our lives to, to anything other than God will only come as we turn away from those things 
and what really is self-worship, saying, you know what, I know what's best for me. I know what the desires of my heart are, so I'm going to throw myself at those things. Our rescue will only come when we turn from those things and turn to Jesus. Finally, Jesus drives us home in the last couple of verses, verse 25 and 26. The woman said to him again, she's getting a, a clearer picture. She's piecing some more things together, and we will see that ultimately next week as well as we uh, go through the rest of this chapter. She said, I know that the Messiah is coming, and he will be called the Christ. And, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. He's going he's gonna to make this plain for us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This really gets to the whole point of John's gospel. Remember, John tells us that he wrote this for us. He, he wrote these 20, 21 chapters for us so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And it's helpful that John gives us that thesis statement right at the end in chapter 20. This is the point. I'm the one. You're waiting. You know that someone's coming. I'm here. Jesus is wrapping up the conversation that he started back in verse 10 to 14. Look at a couple highlights there where he said to her, listen, if you knew the gift of God who is saying to you, will you give me a drink? You would ask him and he will give you living water. Whoever drinks from the water that I give, he says, will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I give will become a well of water springing up for eternal life. Jesus is saying, I know you want things. I know your heart is chasing things. I know that you, you look around and you see there's got to be more than just this. I am the answer. See, she and we need to have a right understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus isn't just some good moral teacher. Jesus wasn't just some rebel in the desert. He isn't just a prophet. Jesus isn't my homeboy, like some bumper stickers might say. But Jesus is the Messiah, the one who was sent by God, from God, who was with God, to rescue us from our sin and our separation from God. So we, we can't do this on our own. And, and this has been the message from God from the beginning. Again, I pointed us back to Genesis 3 earlier. Again, in Genesis 3, after first sin, God promised that he would send a savior, that he would send one to rescue us. And over and over again, through the Old Testament, where maybe the Samaritans had missed, this had been true. This had been promised and seen in Israel's history. When Jacob and his family were going to die because of a, family, of a famine, they went to Egypt for help. Now, the Samaritans would have obviously known this. When they went to Egypt, they found Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, one who they had sold into slavery and yet had risen to prominence. And Joseph saved his family and rescued them from death. Later, when God's people were slaves in Egypt, he sent a rescuer, Moses. And then he instituted a festival so that every year they would look back and they would remember that rescue at how God had saved them. And then they would look forward to the ultimate rescuer coming who would rescue them from sin. Later in their history, Israel's army was staring at defeat in the hands of the Philistines, staring across this valley at their champion, Goliath. But God gave them an unexpected rescuer, a champion in David who, who would defeat that giant, but more than that would promise an even greater champion coming from his line. In all of these situations, who did the work? God did the work. 
rescuing his people. And all of these and more were God foreshadowing what he was going to do for everyone, for all of humankind in Jesus. Which really gets back to Jesus saying salvation is going to come from the Jews. It's the whole of Jewish scriptures that pointed to Jesus. It was the the progressive revelation that, that pictures Jesus coming. But even more than that, Jesus is pointing back to God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 10 where he says, all the peoples of earth, not just some, but all the peoples of earth will be blessed through you. Here's the thing. Christianity is both inclusive and exclusive. Christianity is is inclusive because the invitation to turn to Jesus is open to everyone. And we're just seeing it in these verses. Everyone, it doesn't matter your ethnicity, it doesn't matter your past, your gender, your nationality. These things don't matter. Everyone, everywhere needs Jesus. And Jesus' work on the cross is enough for everyone. But it's exclusive because it says there's only one way to be saved. And that's Jesus. Matt Carter says this. Christianity says that Jesus is the only way to God. If you come to Jesus, he'll get you home. He's the only road that leads to the presence of God. He's the only door into God's house. Jesus is the all-sufficient and the only Savior we need. Listen, we, we can't fit all of that on a bumper sticker. If we want to to understand and share Christianity, we need to focus on three things. Sin, salvation, and a Savior, Jesus. It's not about getting better. It's not about doing better. The message of Christianity is, again, as, as one other writer has said, is the call to worship the God of the universe. It's the call to the soul-expanding, heart-enlarging, world-shaking worship of the God who reigns over all. It's a call to turn from our sinful rebellion rebellion, and to be saved from our self-worship by the power of Jesus Christ. John Newton, who was a hymn writer nearing the end of his life, summed up the message of Christianity perfectly. And maybe if the print was small enough, you could fit this on a bumper sticker, but... He said this, My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. Let me pray for us. And so God, I pray that you would stir up our lives, that you would work in our hearts. Jesus, just like you did with this woman some 2,000 years ago, I pray that you would speak to us, draw our hearts to you, I ask for for grace and forgiveness when we dodge the question. Give us patience there as well, but bring us back to the important things. Jesus, show us and reveal in us the ways that we're chasing after cheap substitutes for a Savior. Maybe you're tuning in for the first time or the first few times and you're encountering Jesus in this message of Christianity and you do want to claim this truth for yourselves. You want to become one of those true worshipers that turn to trust in Jesus and worship in the Spirit. 
If that's you, I'd invite you to click that little yes button that's showing up in the chat on the church online page or drop a that's me in the comments section or you can head to our website, trinitycanmore.com slash commit. Just drop us a little note because we want to celebrate with you. We want to, to walk with you along that journey. And if that's you this morning, I'll invite you to pray with me as we, as we all pray. Heavenly Father, forgive my sins from when I've gone my own way. Jesus, change me. Make me new. Jesus, thank you for coming to make me new. I surrender my life. I give it all to you. Thank you for new life. You have all of mine. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.